Before the episode begins, I'd like to tell you about the Science for Care podcast. Science for Care is an audio series produced by HealthTech for Care, an endowment fund committed to support and promote access to care for all patients. Each episode takes a concise look at some of the major advances in medicine, mRNA vaccines, antibiotics, gene therapy, the metaverse, and many more. The production is meticulous, the narration captivating, and the guests are true leaders in their respective fields. If you listen to Impulse, then you'll be for sure interested, so don't wait any longer and go listen to the first two seasons of Science for Care. I started my career like in medical imaging as a product manager sitting in dark rooms observing radiologists and asking them, well, why did you do that? What was that click for? That piece of paper, I heard you called someone on the stentophone. What was that for? And I think that that curiosity of understanding problems and how we solve them ultimately and which ones are pervasive and which ones have a willingness to pay behind them is really what's fueled a lot of, of my career. And so uh, it's, it's kind of been a journey. And, and like you said, kind of flexing uh, between like big corporate and small companies has been a lot of fun. In many ways, maybe that vacillation is really what makes career special. Welcome to Impulse, the podcast where you will meet the person shaping the current medical advancements and pushing the boundaries of what is currently achievable in healthcare. Be they researchers, doctors, engineers, or entrepreneurs, we will explore through in-depth conversations their field of expertise, as well as the journey that took them where they are now. All right. So good morning, Ohad. I think it's still relatively early where you are in Vancouver. It's a pleasure to have you here in this new episode of Impulse. I've been looking forward to our conversation in a long time, basically since I've come across Clarius, the company that you're leading today and which operates in the field of handheld ultrasound devices, which I find quite fascinating from a technical point of view. Um, in preparation of the episode, I also did some homework to know more about your journey and career. And I'm sure that there is a ton of topics to cover in that regard. Um, you've had the chance to work in such a diversity of companies within the healthcare industry, from Fortune 500 firms to startups, having occupied consistently top leadership positions. Um, I'm really curious to learn more about these topics, understand the field in which you're working now, and hear your reflections on your personal journey, which I'm sure will inspire many of the listeners that are currently hearing our conversation. Um, before we dive into that, I'd like to warmly thank Maria for making this episode possible and having that recording session organized. Many, many greetings to her. And um, I would now invite you, Ohad, to present yourself. Excellent, Mateo. Thanks so much for having me. I've been following your podcast and uh, we have many converging interests and, and like you said, a lot to talk about. Um, yeah, I've been in the medical device, digital health business for a good part of my career. I'm Israeli originally, mm -hmm. and I started my tech career in the military and um, was a product manager in the intelligence core and ultimately uh, led a company that kind of spun out from the military. Uh, and that was really the genesis of my career. I uh, came back while I was um, still in the high tech world early days, I uh, did a law degree, which, you know, maybe was misguided, yeah. perhaps not, I'm, I'm still contemplating that I never practiced as a lawyer, but I did do the bar, which was a big pain. Uh, and yet I feel that a lot of that kind of legal thinking has been highly applicable, actually, to growing businesses and yeah. thinking about business problems. Uh, I moved to Vancouver in 2006. My wife uh, was a Vancouverite, and uh, she dragged me here kicking and screaming at first. 
because I just come from Tel Aviv. I was kind of like top 30, under 30, you know, like this mecca of like energy and ambition and startups. Yeah. And you move to Vancouver, West Coast of Canada, it's pretty sleepy. Uh, and it's, you know, Vancouver has greatly improved over the years from that perspective, but it was a little bit of a shock. But um, through complete serendipity, I ended up at, at McKesson, which uh, had its medical imaging headquarters here in Vancouver. It had acquired a Vancouver-based company. And uh, when I came on in 2006, it was just kind of the perfect time where um, medical imaging software, what's called PAX, was just exploding. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that you know, for the medical imaging group, we had all the benefits of a Fortune 5 company like McKesson Channel and Capital and brand name, but we didn't have any of the pain of kind of Big Brother because, you know, we're kind of in Canada, we were high growth business, spitting off a lot of EBITDA. So I think we had like all the benefits without any of the downside. It was really a wonderful period. I was there for 11 years. I uh, spent the last several years as the SVP GM uh, running that uh, part of that business. And, um, and then worked for TELUS, which is a large Canadian telco, uh, which has a very substantial digital health division. And, and you know, many health, many telcos have dabbled in digital health, yeah. but very few have had the staying power of TELUS has been in there for 15 years. I served as, it's, it's about a $2 billion business now at TELUS. So it's a uh, wow. very substantial dominant position in, in Canada. And I ran the EMR business there, uh, about 50% market share of all EMRs in Canada and served as the corporate chief strategy officer. But, um, you know, after 15 years of being a big corporate guy, which I always say, like, I never thought of myself as one, but the numbers don't lie. I, um, I decided to come back to my startup roots <laughs> and, uh, you know, ju I just felt I was so far removed from the product, from the technology, yeah. from the customers, and I wanted to get closer again. So um, I took uh, the reins of um, a company called Zebra Medical, an imaging AI company, really one of the first innovators in that space, yeah. uh, which was a venture-backed company. Uh, which was sold in uh, early 2021. And, and that was an Israeli company, right? It was, exactly. And, you know, I joined, uh, basically the day I started uh, was kind of the day that COVID really broke out. And I was in Israel when it oh, happened. Wow. Yeah. And I was going to relocate to New York City from Vancouver with my family to run the company, mm -hmm. kind of spend half my time in New York and half in Tel Aviv. And oh. uh, kind of COVID threw a big wrench in that. I ended up running the company remotely. Uh, I'd spend, you know, kind of weeks in Israel and then back here. I spent mm -hmm. 70 days in quarantine in 2020, just going back and forth. Because oh those were the days pre-vaccine. You had to quarantine yeah, yeah, every yeah. time you traveled. Yeah. And uh, I would wake up at 4 a.m. here in Vancouver to help, you know, help support the team remotely. It was it was a oh. interesting period. Uh, exciting. Learned a lot. And, and I think yeah. um, it's a very early stage company, right? So still kind of shaping the ROI model. And I think we had a nice exit ultimately to um, uh, an OEM partner. And um, did some venture roles after that, a lot of board appointments, uh, kind of in an yep. interim period, which was really fun. And then uh, took the helm uh, here at Claris. I'm just coming up to my one year anniversary at oh, Claris. Wow. So I yeah, took over. New. Yeah. It is new, yeah. It's uh, and it's been such a great experience. It's, this company is a real gem. And uh, took over for for the founder. Uh, yeah, he's a very Pelissier. special guy, yeah. Laurent mm -hmm. Pelissier. Mm -hmm. He's a longtime ultrasound entrepreneur. And um, yeah, we're we're now. Uh, you know, uh, number three in global market share in the space and growing very rapidly. So it's been it's been a wonderful journey. Oh, congrats! It's really cool, and we're going to dive into that in a few minutes. So you just mentioned that you 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 studied law and uh, that you know you ended up in healthcare through complete serendipity. But wasn't there like any 
interest from for that field like you know or basically what happened once you're you know you finish you you pass the bar exam and you finish your degree like what what happens well you know i i'd started my uh law degree when i was still relatively early days in high tech like you know relatively recently out of the military so yeah um you know i guess i didn't know what my tech career would shape up like and kind of as it was gaining <laughs> traction and uh and you know, as getting deeper and deeper into it, kind of became clear, like I didn't want to be a lawyer. But I, yeah. I really, I, I really feel I did take away a lot from the degree. And then I, I did the clerkship um, kind of part time, which is not an easy thing to do when you're running a company, I was running a small startup, then about 18, 20 employees. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I felt also it was a chance to give back, I did my clerkship in environmental law, Uh, supporting a bunch of NGOs. And so I'm definitely, I don't regret doing it, but it was a lot going on. And, um, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I yeah, it was, um, I, I'm not sure I would repeat it, but but I think very few career paths, Mateo, are really by design, right? You kind of start one thing and you, you know, like kind of a career is the ultimate like uh, story and like pivoting and repivoting, right? And like mm -hmm. figuring out what you want to do. Yeah. I guess I'm still on that journey. I, I don't say I've nailed it yet. <laughs> no, but I think it's interesting because so you you said you were you did your military service and then you you, you did your studies and and then you went into like you know the, the healthcare business like I I assume that you know the let's say the business codes and the, the knowledge that you need to kind of like succeed in that environment is not something you acquired through um, your studies directly or through uh, the military service or actually the military yes the military I'd say was the best possible training ground actually yeah. for for startups it, it, it's very interesting but the israeli military certainly where i served in the intelligence corps yeah. uh in in the unit that i was at um we kind of tend to think of the military as very regimented and kind of top down very hierarchical <laughs> yeah. and actually that's not my experience at all like the unit that i was in was extremely disruptive i was a very young officer at like 19 i became an officer yeah. and you're really empowered to make decisions to challenge And, uh, and so, and, and while still working in a corporate structure, right, essentially the military mm -hmm. is a high tech company and, and, you know, the Israeli military in particular, because it's, it's conscripted, you're working with, at least in my unit with the most intelligent, most motivated people in the world. Right. And mm -hmm. so it's, mm -hmm. it's like this amazing incubator, uh, which more than anything else I've done actually prepared me. And I think accelerated actually my development in my tech mm -hmm. career. So, um, Perhaps the study's less so, even though I think there's some definitely legal thinking yeah, that yeah. I've been able to bring into business over the years. Sure. Hmm. Okay, no, that's that's very interesting. Um, so if I'm not mistaken, you started working in the field of digital health and um, medical imaging in particular quite early on, and we speak here about the early 2000s. And um, I believe that the landscape of technologies and companies that were part of that ecosystem at the time were quite different from now, where you know today we seem to see digital health popping up all the time in the news, social media, and other information sources. Um, how was it back then? Uh, and what were the main trends and challenges that the field was dealing with? Yeah, so I started in medical imaging, which is really the first big space in health to become digitized mm -hmm. uh, because the ROI, the return on investment from going digital in medical imaging was so profound, right? I mean, if you think about it, all the medical imaging modalities, so CT, X-ray, uh, MRI, um, ultrasound, mammography, 
right, were historically creating um, analog outputs, right? They were creating film prints. And, you know, you've probably seen this in videos. You might be too young to ever have experienced it. But, you know, <laughs> film used to be looked at against a light board. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know <laughs> physicians were looking at it. And what am I seeing here, right? And, uh, you know, as a result, not only was the workflow very clunky, but um, hospitals, healthcare providers had literally basements and basements full of film, film jackets, because they have to mm-hmm. retain them for yes. records retention purposes and medical legal liability. And so when, uh, when, when PAX, PAX is Picture Archiving and Communication Systems, it's basically the software that drives the workflow for medical imaging. If you kind of mm-hmm. think about medical imaging, the first step is acquiring the image, and that's done by the modality, the machine, the X-ray, CT, MRI, mammography, or ultrasound machine. Yeah. And then once that image comes out, you have the PAC system, which does the interpretation, archive, retrieval, workflow, and collaboration. Mm-hmm. And so the ROI was so profound because all of a sudden you were eliminated these massive film rooms uh, in the hospitals. And also mm-hmm. you were substantially increasing the productivity of the radiologists and the cardiologists, which were the main users working with medical imaging. And, and really what drove the adoption of PACs was a thin slice CT technology. Because once CTs got to 16 and later 64 slice scanners, Mm -hmm. the amount of images, the amount of slices they were creating per case were so huge, you couldn't hang all of them on a light board. Like you had to go digital. And so I think that there still isn't a single uh, digital health asset or system that has an ROI as robust as PAX, or at least Mm -hmm. as PAX Mm -hmm. did. Uh, It's just the return was, I, I, I don't even know how to quantify it, hundreds, yeah, thousands fold. Central. Uh, and since then, most systems are just kind of playing in the periphery of like ROIs and maybe some don't have ROIs yet, but perhaps will over time. So that was the landscape. And it was interesting because we were a pure play software vendor, uh, McKesson, which had acquired mm-hmm. our kind of our original PAX company in a market that was historically dominated by the big iron vendors. So GE, Philips, and Siemens, yeah. which uh, are kind of the three, the big three uh, modality companies, they build the machines they initially also dominated the PAX space, right? Because before there was a lot of standardization, they created software that only really works with their machines. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that medical imaging is one space where standardization or standard-based approach has been really successful because the all the machines output the same way. It's a standard called DICOM. And as a result, that created this amazing interoperability ecosystem and allowed pure play software companies like ours back in the day, McKesson and, and later Change Healthcare, uh, to become the, the strongest players. And so that's kind of from those early days, that was really the experience of, of what it was like. And it was it was hyper growth as well. It was really exciting times. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, we had the chance to discuss the topic with Daniel Kraft, whom you might know in episode 12 of the show. Um, but I wanted to know how you were interpreting the, the current booming that we see in the field of digital health and in particular in the application of AI to medical technology. Um, as we record this episode, there were very recently some quite some breakthrough, notably coming from OpenAI, which kind of like literally caught the world off guard in showcasing what the possibilities in this space were. Um, in your opinion, is that a question of maturity, um, acceptance from the medical community, acceptance from patients, a mix, um, none of those? I think that there's no question it's happening. And and I'd say that the technology is far outstripping the actual value that the the technology capabilities are far outstripping the value that it can create. 
Um, generally, I've said this at many interviews, um, when, when AI really came onto the scene in medical imaging or everywhere in healthcare, there was kind of all this discourse, uh, this narrative of like, will machines replace doctors? And, and the reality is, and I've quoted this in many interviews, um, that, uh, you know, AI will not replace radiology. <laughs> Radiologists that use AI will replace radiologists that don't. Mm-hmm. And this, I kind of view the evolution of AI and generally of digital health as you know, becoming like more of a, of like a cyborg, right? Of like mm-hmm. a human that's powered by, by machines. And, and it's very applicable for many mundane and routine tasks mm-hmm. and probably less applicable for highly complex, nuanced tasks. Because I see generally um, healthcare is a little bit of a mix of art and science, and so we, I think we can automate the art part, but there's, sorry, the science part, but there's certainly a big art component. And so, you know, would I want AI to uh, provide a second read to every mammogram? Absolutely. Would I want AI to automatically read um, chest x-rays of which like 70% are deemed as normal and often are in many health systems um, are not even read by radiologists? Yeah. Um, absolutely. Would I want uh, AI to try and interpret, um, you know, a very complex MRI case for, you know, a rare oncological disease? Probably mm-hmm. not, right? Because the um, the extent of the data that we've trained it and the maybe creativity of needing to deal with a new indication or a new manifestation mm-hmm. isn't there. So I, I think that that's generally my approach is that AI will have a tremendous role in healthcare, but where we have to focus on is on the roles that are highly repetitive are data intensive and are more mundane. Just like when a pilot is flying from Zurich yeah. to Vancouver, uh, where, uh, between our, our two cities, um, I would prefer to know that the pilot is doing the landing and the takeoff, but I also can't imagine that the pilot is gonna hold the controls for 12 hours overnight. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd much rather a machine do that and the pilot focus on kind of what matters most. So I think that's a good analogy of the yeah. role that I think it will play. In terms of adoption, the point I was trying to make is that technology is is there in many things, and certainly in, in medical imaging, where there's so much rich data to work with, uh, the sensitivity and specificity is very high. The question is, have we really found use cases that are that profound or that are that useful? Because I still feel, and, and I say this as the former CEO of an imaging AI company that was leading the market in terms of number of FDA clearances, mm-hmm. but I, I, I'd, I'd still, um, I'd still um, argue that the value uh, by standalone AI applications is still on the periphery. Mm-hmm. It's not yet at the core of really what imaging does. I think at some level, until we can um, convince the FDA, part of this is regulatory, until we convince the FDA that AI can do a full rule out, that we will empower a machine to only read a certain type of study and not have a radiologist overread it. That's a very mm-hmm. powerful thing in terms of really bending kind of the cost curve of healthcare, for, mm-hmm. for, for example as opposed yeah. to just using AI where it's principally used today is to prioritize cases and promote them to a higher priority in the queue of the radiologist or the cardiologist, which is kind of has nominal value in my opinion. Yeah. But then comes like the question about liability and uh, what happens and uh, yeah, in case. Like, exactly. There's medical where... legal implications and there's societal implications of like, well, you know, would I want my wife's mammogram to be read only by a machine? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I'd probably be comfortable if it was a second read, but if it was a primary <laughs> read and no human looked at it, and uh, and if something, you know, uh, uh, heaven forbid, happens, like 
to your point, what's the recourse? Who's mm -hmm. responsible? Is it the developer that wrote the AI model, the CIO that signed off on it? Mm -hmm. The regulator has approved it, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the regulator that approved it, exactly. I, I don't know the answer to that. Hmm. Yeah, no, it's, that's fascinating. Um, I, have, I have a ton of um, questions as well on your, on your background and your very impressive career so far. Um, but I'd like to zoom in on your current role as the CEO of Claris. Um, could you tell us more about what the company is about, what lies at the core of the technology that you have developed, and how that redefines to some degree our practice of medicine? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so Claris is a digital health company. We're headquartered in Vancouver, Canada, and we're on a mission to make accurate, easy to use and, and affordable ultrasound tools available to all medical professionals across multiple specialties. Mm -hmm. And that means, you know, extending from where imaging or where ultrasound was historically used, like in radiology and cardiology labs, to a variety of use cases and care settings, you know, like nurses in the developing world, EMTs in an ambulance, family doctors providing rural medicine or surgeons uh, performing safer procedures under imaging guidance. And there's many, many more use cases and care settings. And we do this by bringing together high performance ultrasound imaging, cloud data, and artificial intelligence in this very mm -hmm. powerful ecosystem that provides significant value to improve patient care. Mm -hmm. and, and it's all done in this incredible form factor. I don't have an ultrasound with me right <laughs> now, uh, but it's the size of an iPhone 11. Uh, it costs yeah, under $3,500. And yet it's a full-fledged ultrasound machine that has a quality output that's really comparable to the legacy systems that you may have seen at the hospital. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you can appreciate how this small wireless solution is so different than the big old carts with all their yeah. cables and knobs and buttons. Um, and so uh, really our, our, our goal here and, and the role actually of AI in the context of Clarius is to make mm -hmm. it easy to use, even by clinicians that haven't been trained as a radiologist or as a sonographer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would, I mean, I would encourage people to go into the website to see like, you know, how small the devices because you know you said it's wireless it's just like you know it's just a probe and i think the image is being streamed on a smartphone or another type of device um but and i haven't got the chance to see so many like you know real um let's say card system or the traditional ones but it's like a big machine you have cables and the few i've seen you have like a console with a thousand a thousand knobs and buttons like you know what djs use to make music and it just seems to be like a hustle to use, you know, and um, when you look at your product, it's, it, it just, yeah, it seems like everyone can use it. Basically it's not, I mean, beyond just the medical practitioners. Exactly. I think that's such an important point, Matteo, is actually the usability because obviously the form factor and the price point immediately stand out and, and they're very important enablers to making yeah. ultrasound more accessible, mm -hmm. but actually in order to put this in the hands of many more medical professionals and ultimately in the hands of patients, we need to make it much easier to use. And, and that's really where that secret ingredient comes in, which is our software and our artificial intelligence. This allows users to overcome the barriers for entry, all those knobs and buttons and all the proficiency required to know how to optimize the image. This is where that secret ingredient, right? The artificial intelligence and the software come in because that's what allows users to overcome the barriers for entry Mm -hmm. uh, overcome the need to optimize the view all the time through all these highly complex and sophisticated knobs and controls Yeah, mm -hmm. by really making the acquisition of, of these high quality images as simple as, as point and click, even without expert training. And that's mm -hmm. using AI in real time. And that's actually really what compelled me to join the company. I came from a software background. This is kind of the first pure play device that I've worked on. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And, and I thought that I could add a lot of value to a company that was principally hardware oriented. And, and our founder, Laurent, really built, he's been at the forefront of kind of pushing the bounds of what ultrasound technology can do. Mm-hmm. And I thought that marrying that with an AI and software driven approach, kind of the fusion of the two is what's needed to truly allow us to accomplish our, our mission, right, of, of making this much more ubiquitously available and overcoming that training hurdle by lowering that that barrier for entry. Because when you use AI in real time, not post-processing, like kind of the legacy approach that we've discussed, but actually in real time, it helps to guide and gamify the experience. It helps to show you the anatomy, segment it in real time, measure it in real time, show you how to move your hand to position a probe in a way that you'll optimize the image uh, just by overlaying a view on that kind of red, 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 green, boom, you've acquired the four chamber view of the heart. Yeah. And um, that's really profound. Um, and, and all that's done without needing to pause, optimize the controls, especially when you're in an interventional setting. Uh, many of our users in one hand, they'll have a scalpel or a, or a needle to perform an injection. In the other hand, an ultrasound, they don't have a third hand to mess around with the ultrasound. They need the AI to mm-hmm. automate the gain, depth of field, exactly. um, contrast, so that they can have the best image without needing to tinker with it. Yeah, and a few interactions that they have to have with the smartphone is actually quite similar to like other apps that we use. Like you know, I checked on on when on the videos, like it's like you swipe up and down, you adjust again, uh, you can pinch to zoom in. Like it's quite intuitive. I always say, if you can pinch or you can swipe, you can use our ultrasound. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, no, that's that's super interesting. Is um, you? I think you 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 mentioned it. Uh, a few minutes ago, but is your vision to ultimately put ultrasound scanners in the hands of patients and enable them to perform their own scan from home? I think that's where we're going to go. I mean, we're seeing generally, like when we started the call, we we're talking about general trends in medical image, oh, sorry, mm-hmm. in, in digital health and how pervasive it's becoming. A big part of it is through the consumerization of healthcare. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think that, you know, rightfully patients are demanding and taking much more control of their care pathways. And I think that the legacy model that is doctor and hospital centered is unsustainable, right? People are living longer, population is growing. We can't even continue to serve them without, mm-hmm. um, empowering patients to do more and more. But, but uh, again, like to my point with like the autopilot, it's like, it's the right tools for the right job. Like, Do I think that patients can diagnose themselves? I don't think that's appropriate. I think they're lacking the training and the context, even if they had a tool that would be able to uh, produce a very high quality image without any proficiency. But Mm -hmm. um, for monitoring conditions, for example, that's a great example. I think that we're starting to see, um, FDA still has not cleared it, but we're starting to see uh, use cases in the field of obstetrics and fertility. We're actually working with a company called Turtle Health, uh, which is running a clinical trial now uh, with Mayo. We published the first results in uh, the Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology mm-hmm. um, in April this year, where they are doing uh, at-home uh, fertility treatments. Fertility treatments are, are common. They're very consumer-oriented in many ways, right? This is yeah. someone's personal choice to bring mm-hmm. a child to the world and working through fertility challenges they might have. And they're very invasive uh, if they're done in, in, in kind of in a very medical um, environment. And so uh, Turtle Health provide a full um, kind of home-based uh, virtual fertility service where they send like a semen kit to the home. And they also send a Claris ultrasound. One of our wow. probes is a, uh, is a transvaginal probe. And so mm-hmm. women use it in the comfort of their own home 
um, and they're guided remotely through what we have a real-time collaboration feature. They're guided remotely by sonographers that are guiding them on how to perform the vaginal sweep. And uh, then our software uh, and, and the, the sonographer are doing an antral follicle count of basically mm -hmm. uh, measuring the degree of ovulation in the ovaries to kind of optimize the timing for the fertility treatment. And I think that's a great example of a condition where you're monitoring something, uh, you're not mm -hmm. diagnosing, but you're getting real-time inputs that are substantially enhancing the experience for the individual. I think monitoring obstetrics uh, like um, pregnancies is, is, is another good example, uh, right? Uh, we know that a large proportion of ER visits during pregnancies are false alarms when uh, the woman feels, oh, the baby hasn't kicked. Uh, I'm worried, honey, let's go to the ER, get an ultrasound. In two seconds, you can see, oh, ma'am, your, your baby's fine. Heartbeat's yeah, yeah. there. Placental fluid is fine. Position is fine. That could easily be done at home um, using AI to help just validate that. And, and again, I think that we can't expect patients to use their eye uh, to be able to monitor, but rather that's the role that AI will have to play to monitor the condition, provide more of a numerical output. That's not dissimilar to standing on a scale that's telling you how much you've gained or lost, right? Same idea of like you're using the ultrasound to give you like an output on your congestive heart failure or your COPD or other chronic condition you might be monitoring at home where the numerical value is the indicator for disease state progression. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but just the de decentralizing, like, you know, this image acquisition from, you know, not being dependent of a, on, a, on a specialist who are usually like, you know, booked out and you can just do the image acquisition on your own. And then this is like being reviewed offline. Um, that's, that's tremendous. Yeah. I think even before it happens though with patients, I mean, much more important to your theme of decentralization is to get it in the hands of uh, practitioners in the community. That starts with yeah. GPs, right. nurses, right? That's, um, we, we have a lot of, um, like we're very active in the MSK space. We have a lot of physical therapists that are using ultrasound. Now they're a real community-based service provider for a variety of MSK conditions, right? Well before you need to see an orthopedic surgeon or a specialist yeah. to your point. And so I think well before we cross the divide to the patient, which I understand from a regulatory intended use, safety perspective is a bigger leap. Um, we're handheld ultrasound like ours is already cleared for any licensed medical professional so mm -hmm. you know you mm -hmm. can see like actually getting this in the hands of nurses midwives mm -hmm. chiropractors uh, physical therapists um that's where where i think we'll see a real breakthrough in that decentralization thing because it's just not sustainable to send everyone to the er everyone to see a specialist for every condition mm -hmm. Of course, and and what's the perception of these uh, of the sonographers and the radiologists that are you know like going through the heavy training of you know for the image acquisition? There's also like the analysis part, of course. Um, but what's the or maybe some years ago when you know handheld ultrasound was introduced, like how did they perceive that? Like were they scared? <laughs> um, I, I think it's a journey again, not dissimilar to my view on. You know, AI not replacing radiologists, but mm -hmm. radiologists that use AI will replace radiologists that don't. Um, I think it's not dissimilar to handheld. I think to your point early on, it was perceived with a lot of skepticism, kind of like, what is this toy? Yeah. And like, yeah. for real, we're going to get specialists that haven't been trained on imaging to uh, read images. But I think we're seeing that convergence where the use cases where it's appropriate is where it's catching on. Uh, do I think that handheld ultrasound is going to replace? Um, 
you know, full radiological exams that are being performed mm-hmm. with a CART-based system and a sonographer? Probably not, or at least mm-hmm. not right away. The systems have to get better. I'd say the image quality on a full high-end system is still better even than a Claria scanner. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's the right tool for the right job, right? To do a full echo, which is a 45-minute exam, uh, it requires a lot of proficiency. And I yeah. think that it's going to remain within, yeah. you know, with an echo sonographer and a cardiologist that is interpreting it. Mm-hmm. Um, doing a quick scan to look at a congenital issue or measure ejection fraction or know if the patient is having, you know, AMI, I think that's perfect in the hands of an EMT, a nurse, uh, a general practitioner mm-hmm. in a primary care office. And so to me, it's the right tool for the right job. And I think that many radiologists are seeing that. Um, There's still some skepticism, but we're also seeing some breakthroughs. I think one where we'll see that happen is in in breast imaging, where uh, breast imaging is done today through a mammogram. Increasingly, we're seeing the use of ultrasound there. And because it's so pervasive, it will be hard to scale and deploy all of these sonographers and cart-based machines for uh, doing kind of secondary scans to support Mm -hmm. a mammogram with a breast ultrasound. I think handheld could play a very role there if the handheld is really, you know, extremely, uh, has extremely high image quality, which, which Mm -hmm. Claris does. And and I know other players are, are heading in that direction as well. Hmm. I see. Um, having worked in collaboration with other players in the field of handheld ultrasound myself, and there I'm referring to the Singaporean startup, Astu.ai, that you that you know. Mm-hmm. Greetings to James and Caroline if they are listening to us. Um, one thing where the AI component is extremely useful is in the, the calculation of certain parameters that are derived from the acquired images. So you, you mentioned the ejection fraction in the case of heart failure, for example. Um, we actually talked about it with Ted from Imagines in the very first episode of this podcast, who is applying this to another imaging modality, and namely MRI. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that those parameters are very much specialty dependent or specific to a certain disease, but if I'm not mistaken, I, uh, I haven't seen in these capabilities featured on your website. Is that something that you are also exploring or was it not considered on purpose yet? Absolutely. So um, our, our focus to date had been on real-time AI, meaning AI that is um, acquired while you're, or that is um, leverage while you're acquiring the images to help optimize yeah. the view. Actually, we're, I don't want to steal the thunder of an upcoming uh, press release, but we're about to announce our first clearance for, yeah. um, for an indication-specific uh, post-processing AI. So that's coming. And Great. certainly, I think that's an important part of, of complementing that, right, of using technology mm-hmm. to segment the anatomy uh, and then to, to measure it as well. Because in many conditions, uh, automated measurements play an important role. If you th- We talked about obstetrics, you know, the amount of mm-hmm. and cardiology, which is a domain that you know well. There's a very large number of measurements and discrete measurements that are reported through registries as well. And it's very important uh, to be able to automate them because it's time consuming. It goes back to my autopilot again of like mundane repeatable tasks are uh, are ones that are really prone for AI to add a lot of value in. And especially ones that have operator variability. Measurements in ultrasound have a lot of operator variability. And therefore the value of companies uh, like uh, US2AI or what we're doing now with segmentation and measurement technologies and AI, I think is, is an important added value once you've acquired great images. But it actually, to me, it still has to start with leveraging AI to acquire those best images and helping users to learn how to do that uh, mm-hmm. and, and to streamline the process of acquiring those images. Yeah. Um, going So more, let's say on the 
on more entrepreneurial side or, or business side of things. But um, I read somewhere, I think it was in 2021, that, you know, obviously you're in a hyper growth state with Clarius. And I think you know, your revenue is basically doubling year over year. Um, how are you dealing with this situation and how do you yeah, interpret the current, uh, like in that regard, the current uptake and adoption of your products in the, in the market? Yeah, we've been extremely high growth uh, for the certainly for the last three years, uh, and I think we're able to grow the total addressable market by um, kind of coming at it two ways, right? So we were getting novice users, greenfield users that didn't have access to ultrasound before; they couldn't afford it, mm -hmm. uh, it was too big for their practice, or they had a proficiency barrier. And so the combination of our price point, form factor, and AI and software is what's enabling novice users to come into that domain. And like we talked about MSK, a good example of that is chiropractors, which were mm -hmm. never trained on ultrasound. In the U.S., they're licensed to perform uh, medical injections, uh, pain injections, which is a very important alternative to a drug-based uh, um, opioids, right? And so um, that's an example of like novice users coming into that space. So they're kind of a big base of the pyramid in the MSK space. But we are also getting uh, market growth from the top of the pyramid. So like bottom-up sales for novice users, top-down for highly proficient and experienced users that already had access to ultrasound but never thought that handheld could serve them and now for the first time are replacing their compact system, their Sonosite mm -hmm. or MindRay or GE Philips compact mm -hmm. with a Claris handheld. And so our ability to uh, come at the market and serve our users Uh, from the bottom up, novice users powered by uh, AI, price point, form factor, coupled with our ability to get into the replacement market and serve experienced users through our superior image quality and through, again, AI enablement mm -hmm. that just mm -hmm. offers a better workflow experience for people that already know what they're doing, but they want to do it better, faster, um, is really, I think that's been the big key to our growth. So it's really, um, it's like, basically medical practitioners buying it it's not like you know hospitals are like switching their system to like you know fully handheld equipment it's more like it's b2c driven most of it about 75 of our business is b2c driven so practitioners bring it into their practice usually into their into their their, their private office setting mm -hmm. uh where where either they're billing for or getting reimbursed or, or billing for a private pay but in any case they're getting um you know, better patient care, better access to tools mm -hmm. and often better economic outcomes as well by having ultrasound integrated into their practice. But mm -hmm. 25% of our business is selling into hospitals, often yeah. leveraging the fact that we already got the most difficult vote to get, which is the clinical vote. Mm -hmm. the clinical vote is so hard to get, of course, in order to sell into a health system. There's many other barriers to overcome, um, economic yeah. case, uh, working with, uh, you know, IT, CIO's office, IT security, compliance, biomed, which is an area that you know well, but um, but we already have the clinical vote. And so mm -hmm. that is a big area of growth for us now is kind of enhancing our hospital business, overlaying where we've already seeded many of the major academic medical centers and IDNs yeah. with our handhelds in the department where private clinicians brought them in or the head of the department bought five, seven scanners for just uh, practitioners in that group. And now leveraging those footprints to also um, better serve the enterprise from the top down. Hmm. All right. Um, my my next question is more in the direction of career development. So um, I'm 26 and still relatively early in my own career in the healthcare business. And it's a real chance to have the possibility to, to talk with you 
as part of my podcast. And I thought it'd be interesting for listeners in a similar situation as me to hear about your reflections here. Um, so throughout your career, you've worked um, in a lot of different structures. I mentioned like Fortune, from Fortune 500 companies to startups, middle-sized firms, and across many different uh, businesses that were always linked somehow to digital health and uh, medical imaging. I find it quite impressive that, you know, looking back at your journey, you've consistently occupied top leadership positions as a GM within McKesson, as CEO of Zebra Medical Vision, um, as CEO of Claris today. When you started your career, did you already have that ambition and that vision that you would be pursuing this type of career with such a track record? Or would you rather say that the choices you've made and that eventually led you there were driven by curiosity and intuition for a particular field at a certain point in time? I'm, I'm trying to understand as you seem to have cracked something there and I'd be really curious to, to hear your thoughts on these points. Yeah, I think very few careers, Mateo, are by design and maybe others have this and certainly in business though, like you know, the business world evolves so quickly that actually, like, even if you had a design, I mean, it will have changed because the market environment has changed and the types of mm -hmm. businesses that exist change. And I think I had about my kids, I think, like, the careers that they will have are in roles that don't even exist today. So yeah. um, I'd love to say that more of it was by design, but I, I think it wasn't. It was, I, I really like how you actually attributed it to curiosity. I think that was a key driver in many ways in my career. Um, I was always a product person. So I started my career as a product manager in the military, and that was my first job out of the military. That's where I started at McKesson, uh, which was my first kind of big corporate job. And um, I think to be successful in product management, you have to be extremely problem-oriented, not solution-oriented. And that seems like a very obvious thing, but it's actually very difficult, right? Because usually, especially in technology, we kind of tend to be solution. Like there's like, yeah. how do we solve this? And immediately like, what is the thing? Mm -hmm. But like, I kind of had, was always more curious about like, well, that's not the thing. We'll come up with a thing, but let's find what is the thing used for? Mm -hmm. And uh, and really make sure we understand that well. And I, I started my career like in medical imaging as a product manager, sitting in dark rooms, observing radiologists and asking them, well, why did you do that? What was that click for? Yeah. That piece of paper, I heard you called someone on the stentophone. What was that for? Mm -hmm. And I think that that curiosity of understanding problems and how we solve them ultimately and which ones are pervasive and which ones have a willingness to pay behind them mm -hmm. is really what's fueled a lot of, of my career. And so uh, it's, it's kind of been a journey. And, and like you said, kind of flexing uh, between like big corporate and small companies has been a lot of fun. Um, in many ways, maybe that vacillation is really what makes career special in my mm -hmm. view, right? It's like, yeah. you know, for a certain period, you're big corporate guy, big scale, you're kind of operating. And then for a period in your career, you're kind of the um, innovator, blue sky, just run with it. And let's mm -hmm. just, and so, I, you know, I, I had like a pretty interesting moment when I, um, when I was uh, thinking of leaving TELUS and coming back to the startup world, Yep. Uh, I was talking to the CEO of TELUS, uh, who's a really special individual, and um, and I, I was talking to him about the story of the Disney brothers. You know, um, mm -hmm. Walt Disney is very famous. He was kind of this blue sky innovator, and he had a brother whose name was Roy, Roy Disney. He was like the hard-nosed operator. Mm -hmm. And uh, and kind of, you know, the yin and the yang between them is like one was the operator, one was the dreamer, and like together they created this incredible um, business, which is Disney. And I was, I, was, I was talking to, to the CEO of Talus about, um, 
you know, like kind of, I've been doing a lot of Roy jobs recently because when you're in a big corporate, you're more like Roy Disney. You're like optimizing, mm-hmm. and and uh, and I I wanted to come back to being Walt again, and I yeah. said I'm I'm kind of conflicted. Am I a Walt or am I a Roy? And he said, you know, Ohad, you um, as I look back at my career, the fun of transitioning from being Walt to Roy is actually what's mm-hmm. fueled my whole career, and I I thought that was really profound, and I feel the same, mm-hmm. and I mm-hmm. uh, enjoy both, and I think as a good leader, you have to have both in you. Uh, and some, you know, and you, you also, the decisions you make on how to construct the team around you to support you should also be driven by knowing where you have a stronger index. And I'm more Walt than Roy, but I have mm-hmm. a lot of Roy in me. And yeah. also I'm most successful when I have excellent Roy Disney's around me. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's super inspiring. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. Um, still on the career development side of things, um, would you consider at some point founding your own company? Uh, I don't. I don't think you've created a, your your own company yet, right? I haven't. No, that's a very astute observation. I've always been like a hired gun operator. Um, I, I'm not sure. You know what? I think it requires uh, a little <laughs> bit of a different skill set. Uh, um, you, you kind of to be a great innovator or like a great entrepreneur, like starting from scratch, mm-hmm. you almost have to be blind. And deaf, like don't listen to anyone. Don't see the writing on the wall. If you did, you would never start your company. Like the odds of success are like zero, almost zero, yeah. right? And uh, actually, like Laurent, who's the founder of Claris, and I always talk about, like he is this amazing kind of zero to twenty million guy. He has yeah. this this amazing spirit of innovation. Like anything is doable. He gets everything done. Like impossible odds. I don't know how mm-hmm. to do that. And Maybe I'll get there. Maybe I won't. Maybe I'm a really good like 20 yeah. million to 100 million scaler and grower, right? And so there's still a lot of innovation in that, but it's mm-hmm. a different kind. And it comes from being much more also maybe outside in. I think at some level, maybe the great entrepreneurs are inside out. They have a vision. It's burning in them. They have to get it out. Mm-hmm. And they don't really care what's happening. Maybe the need doesn't even exist. They will find the need, <laughs> right? Yeah, and yeah, so like that's yeah. a different mentality. Um Maybe I have it. I, I always struggle. I, I don't know the answer to that yet. Maybe mm-hmm. let's do this uh, again in five years and ask yeah. you one more time. <laughs> that would be cool. Great. No, we're, I think we're uh, cautious about, about the time and um, we've covered a lot of elements. So you talk us through um, your current role, uh, what Clarice is about, uh, some reflections on your journey that I think are extremely valuable. Um, at the end of each episode, I ask a couple of recurring questions to every guest. Um, the first one I have for you is, um, what resources would you recommend us to check out in in order to know more about the field in which you evolve? So, you know, handheld ultrasound, be it books, publications, websites. I'd say start with our website, uh, claris.com, um, mm-hmm. because we really invest a lot in education and because we are still shaping the market. Yep. And so you'll find out a lot about how ultrasound can be used. And especially if you're a clinician, a lot of fabulous use cases and great uh, webinars and training content on how you can integrate this and inspire you to bring this into your practice and uh, better serve your patients. So I would start claris.com is the place to go. Great. I'll put that in the show notes. Um, could you share with us an anecdote from your work, which made you realize the impact that you were having on patients' lives? You know, the first time I saw a cath procedure, uh, I was uh, like working in a cardiology business. I was like director of product, I think maybe VP product then, um, but I'd never seen a live cath procedure. Mm. And so like it's, I'd seen so many medical images. I'd see, I'd sat in so many radiology labs, but like a cath procedure, like the patient is like 
on the table right there. Mm-hmm. They're like actually comatose, uh, grunting, and they're like inserting this unbelievably long guide wire into their body, yeah. into their heart. I'm thinking this is unbelievable. And they're using, we had a hemodynamic monitor at the time. They're using our images and our hemo like to like measure like the pressure in their heart. I thought it was yeah. profound. So that was to me like one of a moment that really uh, resonates. <laughs> yeah, the cat lab is quite it's an impressive setting. Um, at every episode, I really get inspired by the the guests that I have the chance to receive on the podcast, and and you are no exception to it. Um, there are certainly other figures that you look up to yourself, um, also advancing um, medical progress. And uh, if you would recommend one or a few of them as potential guests for the podcast, who would they be, and why would you recommend them? I um little off guard. I, I, you know, because you know, I always want to be sensitive also to promote people that I would actually like to do this. There's a lot of people I'd love to hear their perspective. <laughs> um, I think the CEO of TELUS, by the way, is a very interesting person. You probably never had the CEO of a telco. His name is Darren Entwistle. Mm-hmm. You probably never had uh, the head of a, of a telco uh, come on, but like yeah. why he decided to build a healthcare business and it's a $2 billion business is I think an amazing story. And yeah, his sure. uh, determination yeah. is very profound. That would be great. Yeah. No, very cool. Um, how can we get in touch with you at over LinkedIn per email, any preferred channel? Yeah. Uh, LinkedIn is, uh, is, is best. So uh, Ohad Arazi uh, on LinkedIn, uh, you'll find me. Uh, and, uh, and of course, uh, visit our company, uh, claris.com. Um, and uh, yeah, I would love to hear from uh, the viewers and uh, best of luck to you, Mateo. Really enjoyed this mm-hmm. and uh, keep doing what you're doing. I think you're inspiring a lot of us in the medical device and uh, digital health fields. No, thank you so much, Oha. It's been a real pleasure and um, yeah, I wish you all the best as well. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. All the notes are available in the episode description. Don't hesitate to share it with your relatives, friends or colleagues and subscribe to the podcast. Also, I would be really grateful if you could leave a positive evaluation on Apple Podcasts. It really helps Impulse move up in the rankings. Feel free also to reach out to me by email or through LinkedIn if you want to share your feedback, questions or suggest potential guests. Thanks, and see you in the next one.